You're not the word of God. In the Psalms, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, and you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word of God abides forever. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do pray again that as, even as you spoke worlds into existence by the word of your power, and as you brought light out of darkness, that you at this time would speak to us through the reading, uh, as we have heard, and the preaching of your word, that you would shine the light of your truth upon the dark corners of our hearts and bring light and truth through the gospel, dear Lord, that you would further conform us to the image of of your precious and only Son, our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you would bring glory to your name by doing so. Lord, we ask, now bless the preaching of your word and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord. And we pray this all in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, there are certain phrases and sayings that we hear often in our culture that come into common use throughout time over history. I remember a number of years ago, uh, the first time I heard um, 
someone misused the word woke uh, in front of me, and I had to rebuke them um, to stop using language poorly. But uh, <clears throat> these kind of things happen, right? Uh, things get corroded and, and uh, degraded uh, language. And of course, there are many, many words and phrases that the enemies of God <clears throat> and of truth and of reality use uh, that are really wicked and designed to distort the truth, right? Lying language is what I call them. Lying language uh, is a tool of the enemy. <clears throat> we could spend the rest of the morning talking about that. We won't, uh, but we hear things used negatively all the time, meant to insult while sounding superior or advanced, dismissing things that are true, right? You may have heard the phrase, you probably have often, um, I'm spiritual, I don't believe in organized religion, right? I don't believe in organized religion. That's a common one um, we hear all the time. <clears throat> uh, I always think, like you'd rather have uh, your religion be disorganized Right, it's, but it's, it's, it's an attempt to just dismiss right, the institutions that exist. Um, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just a means that they want to be their own final authority. Right? Uh, I don't want disorganized, I mean organized religion, I want my say. But some of these things have been embraced and repeated by believers even, in different um, traditions, right? By Christians in the church, they are a result of unbiblical beliefs imported and influenced by the culture, <clears throat> uh, well-meaning by most, I'm sure, but things particularly like this, you may have heard. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard that? It's not a relationship. I mean, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. <clears throat> and any of us who encountered difficulty or drama or trauma by or in the church can see the desire to distance the church as an institution from their relationship with, with Jesus, right? I get that. We understand that in some respects. Um, I was talking with a friend this week about uh, some of the struggles that we've seen in churches and some of the missteps and uh, the reality that there's a lot of doing church poorly um, in the world historically and now um, and the sad damage that follows from that, the sadness. <clears throat> and my friend reminded me of Paul. Um, and his struggles that he talks about from within the churches, right? Not just without, but from within the churches. Those who've gone through painful issues and been damaged by the church, I understand, and you do as well, why they might react with this idea that if that's religion, no thanks. I don't want anything to do with it. But we must, we must not equate God's plan and his way with those who fail to keep it. <laughs> or those who distort it or sinfully use it against others. It's like a car, you know, someone can use a car to crash into a building or run someone over. That doesn't mean that cars therefore need to be cast off or abandoned or never used. The Lord shows us who he is in scripture. In his word, he shows himself as God, as a supreme being, as the God who makes covenant and the, guy who keep, the God who keeps covenants. And he graciously tells us for our good that he is the God who enters into relationships with his people, into covenant, like he did with the, the patriarch Abraham. And remember that relationship, that covenant, right? There were, there were given religious ceremonies and rites. There was order and there was structure. It wasn't an informal, nebulous, open-ended relationship. It was a relationship to be sure. But in covenant, it was a religious relationship. Or think of the covenant the Lord established with Israel, right, the nation. 
right? There's a service there, there's sacrifice, there's structure, there's purpose given. And so religion is the means by which God and his people have true relationship, right? We can't pit those two against one another as we hear so often in culture, religion and relationship, right? Or even consider our own horizontal relationships uh, <clears throat> between one another, right? The way that we express that is religion also. Uh, think of James. He says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, right? That's religion that is undefiled and pure. And so we see some, something of this in our Psalm 50 uh, this morning. <clears throat> this relationship and religion reality. Psalm 50 tells us that there is no conflict between the two. They are not mutually exclusive. It's not an either-or proposition, <clears throat> It's been said that without both religion and relationship, you end up with mysticism or superstition, right? Religion alone ends in superstition. Relationship with no religion ends in mysticism, right? Religion alone ends in superstition. Relationship with no religion ends in mysticism. This is sadly a reality for a large swath of the broader evangelical church and has been for years. Right? We're not going to go into catalog all the issues and examples of this <clears throat> for time's sake, but it's infected the church for a long time. Um, I don't know if things still exist anymore uh, called a Christian bookstore, but I remember when you went to one of these years ago, it was quite full of religionless mysticism. Or if you look up uh, uh, the last 20 fads of broader Christianity, um, and the res resemblance we see to mysticism is quite obvious. Borrowing from, capitalizing on practices of Eastern mysticism, baptizing methods in Christian language, seeking a relationship apart from God's prescribed way. Again, well-meaning, I'm sure, but misguided. <clears throat> the Protestant church for so long wanted to maintain the importance of just me and Jesus in my life. You can't discount that aspect of our faith, right? That is a true aspect. But the desire to be genuine and flee from the errors of the Roman church, for instance, can't lead us into mysticism. Rome has much to do with superstition, right? Empty formalism. But we need both, right? God wants both religion and relationship. And we see in Psalm 50 something different going on here than we've seen in the last handful of Psalms. The Psalms are full of songs and meditations and prayers of the believer's heart, crying out to God, singing to God, meditating upon God. But in Psalm 50, notice what's different there. It's God who is speaking to us. Right? God is speaking to us. And what is he saying to us in Psalm 50? Well, Psalm 50 is a call. It's a call by Yahweh to his covenant people. It's a call to covenant renewal. It's a call to wholehearted worship. And it's a call to a life of gratitude living for the Lord in gratitude and thankfulness. But first, it's a call to covenant renewal, right? Verses 1 to 6 tell us about this. It says that your covenant needs to be renewed. Look at verse 1. It says that the one who speaks is whom? It's the mighty one, right? The mighty one, El in, in Hebrew. That's God in his transcendent power and majesty. And then it says the mighty one, God, that's Elohim, which is God's completeness, the completeness, the totality of his divine attributes, the mighty one, God, and then the Lord, that's his covenant name, Yahweh. 
It's God as covenant maker and covenant keeper of, for his people. And so this piling up of titles intensifies what he's saying there. Something serious is coming. We see these titles repeated word for word in Joshua chapter 22. There's this loyalty oath being made there, and Joshua uses these word for word, these same titles. The mighty one, God, the Lord, and he repeats it. The mighty one, God, the Lord. And historically, we see this before Psalm 50, all these things which are given in Psalm 50, right? Think of Deuteronomy, that great uh, treaty document uh, in 31. It says, every seven years the law was to be read to the people and they were to renew their covenant with him. And we have to hear also the target audience that he's speaking to. The Lord here, this mighty one, summons the earth, it says, verse one, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Right? And this is like the previous Psalms we've seen, right? To all the peoples, all peoples. The voice of the Lord commands attention. And from where does the Lord speak in the Psalm here? From where is he speaking? It says in verse two and three, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God shines forth, our God comes. He does not keep silence. He's a God who hears. He's a God who hears. He's a God who is not silent. Right? And we think of, remember back in Psalm three, Back in Psalm 3, David's declaration as he's on a run from his son Absalom. Right? We learned a lot of things from Psalm 3. And one of them is that God is an accessible God. He's a God you can talk to. He's a God you can pray to. He's a God you can pray his word back to him. He hears. He listens. He says in, in verse 4 of Psalm 3, David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I cried to him, and he answered me from his holy hill. David has access to God. He's an accessible God. God is leaving Jerusalem, you remember. I'm sorry, David is leaving Jerusalem, and he's fleeing from Absalom. <clears throat> and yet the holy hill where the tabernacle is located, where the center of worship is, it's in Jerusalem. David's fleeing from that. He's running from there, but he still has confidence that his prayers reach the Lord's holy hill. Yahweh is an accessible God. He's a God you can pray to, a God you can talk to. He's accessible. And this is something we always need to remember, brothers and sisters. Always need to remember. Do you avail yourselves to this incredible benefit that you have as God's people? God hears, you have access to him. And do you know that as, as God's sons and daughters, you have access, bold access to this God, to the creator of the universe? It's true, believe it, you're his. If this is the case for David, how much more so for you on this side of the cross who belong to Christ, who are united to Jesus, right? We don't remember the structures. It was all set up in the Old Testament. We don't stop in the courtyard or the curtain. We blow past that and past the altar through that dividing curtain, dividing us from the Father right into the Holy of Holies and enter into with boldness and full confidence. Because why? Because Jesus, your Savior, is there. And so when David says, you, Yahweh, are my protecting, sufficient, restoring, accessible God, and he focuses on that, and he attaches and fixes himself on the nature of God in the midst of what he's going through, this is what leads him to the peace that he can know in the midst of that danger. And that's important. It's important for him then, and it's important for us now, brothers and sisters. 
When you have something that focuses your attention, that grips your vision, that will put your focus <clears throat> upon where it needs to be, the Lord and his nature, right? So we need to be obsessed with God, truly obsessed with the Lord. He needs to be the, the, the delight and the concern and focus of our hearts and our minds. When we focus on this God, who he is, and the powerful salvation wrought by Jesus Christ, accomplished by the work of the cross. When we do that, the dangers and the stresses and the traumas that we're in won't become our dominant concern. We won't be overwhelmed by them with dizzying fear and drama. We have perspective when we do that. And so the most practical thing you can do, perhaps in your Christian life, amidst the troubles and fears that we go through, is to remind yourself and to focus upon the nature and character of God and his mercy and provision in Jesus Christ. And the more Christ-centered you are in thinking and worship and your devotion, the more properly you will be able to endure your troubles that come like floods around you. Even rejoice in them, as Paul says, rejoicing in sufferings. Right? And so like David, we need to always be reminded and remind ourselves of the kind of God that we have. <clears throat> and quite frankly, there's no easy way to do that other than to do what David did in uh, the psalm there. In the midst of all of that stuff that he's going through, in the midst of all of your trials, turn in your prayers. Take that turn and say, but you, Yahweh. Right? And you describe to him and to yourself the kind of God you have. Well, Psalm 50, in verses 2 and 3, speaks of God's action, right? Out of Zion, God shines forth. God comes. He does not keep silence, right? And this is an action going on. It's an act of judgment, right? He goes on, before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. Uh, we see similar passages throughout Scripture. We see them in Deuteronomy. We see them in Isaiah, references to this. We even see uh, that well-known passage in Hebrews, that we read this morning, right, in the context of worship, the author of the Hebrews says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. This is Psalm, verse 3 of our psalm. It says, our God comes. He does not keep silent. And there's before him a devouring fire and this mighty tempest. So judgment language, right? God the judge. Before him all the earth stands in judgment. And then comes what? <clears throat> comes his witnesses. Verse 4, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people, right? And why is that? He may judge his people. It seems strange. Well, we, we sense here in the psalm that something's not right. Something is off in the relationship between God and his people. Something's not right in the covenant, the covenant bond between them. God specifically is addressing here this gathering of, see, he says they're my faithful ones, my faithful ones. <clears throat> That's connected to that word faithful ones, that word we talk about so often, hesed, right? Hesed, God's covenant love, his covenant, faithful, loyal love to his people. These are the hesed ones, the faithful ones. And he says in, in verse 5, Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Right? And notice that there that the relationship they had was established and sustained by way of religion, prescribed by the Lord 
to his people. Yes, they are his, uh, he's my faithful ones, but something is not right. And wonderfully, we see as we keep reading in verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. And so this is saying here that God is the relationship restorer for his people. He's the one that restores the relationship. And there are times, brothers and sisters, when our relationship with God has suffered, it's fractured, it's strained. Times when our relationship with him as a people need to be renewed and refreshed and restored. And we see this pattern throughout uh, uh, Scripture throughout covenant history, along the timeline of history, there's this strain, this sin, this black and marring to the people's relationship with the Lord. And again and again, the Lord does what? He calls them and he cleanses them again and he consecrates them and he renews them and he reminds them once more of the covenant he entered into with them and he kept. He is the promise keeper, right? And therefore, he restores and he refreshes them and he strengthens them and he communes with them through a meal. And he sends them out, commissions them once more in his name to spread his fame and glory as they live for him and bear witness to his mercy and his power and his love. And that gospel pattern, as we see it again and again and we're reminded of it and we think about it, should warm and soften our hearts, right? It should stir our hearts to joy and comfort and glory to the Lord. When we feel the weight of your, and, and, and the strain in your walk before the Lord due to your sin and failings, this is what reminds us, this is what draws us back. And he brings us back again and he reminds us again of all that he's done. And because he's sovereign and Lord, our standing before him is secured. What an amazing reminder, right? As we're drawn back into the truth of the gospel, right? Covenant renewal again and again. <clears throat> we see it throughout scripture. Uh, we can't, we have time to look at all of it. This just happens again and again. And then the next thing that we see that the psalm is, is it's a call to covenant renewal, but also a call to wholehearted worship. Wholehearted worship, right? What is the way that the Lord does this, that he restores this fractured, strained relationship? He does so by calling his people, Ritually, to renewal by wholehearted worship, by grateful worship, by sincere worship. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So he's not just the mighty one, as he said in verse 1, in his transcendence and power and majesty, holy other and beyond and above. It says what he is. He says, he is our God, right? I am your God. And what does he say to us as our God? Well, first he comes, right? We see this pattern within the psalm here. He comes and gives a rebuke. Verse 8, right? Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Right? And this is language of what? <clears throat> Sacrifice, burnt offerings before me. Right? And so the sentiment of, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And we read this and we think, uh-oh, <clears throat> um, this is very much a religion. <laughs> Structures given, pattern, prescribed by the Lord. God ordained and he approves true religion. And so the problem is when we, when we empty that and turn it into an empty formalism, and that's what's being described here as he goes on in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goat's 
from your folds. Why not? He says, because every beast of the field of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Right? And therefore he says, what? If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. A friend of mine put it this way. He says, formalism is not religion or repetition. That's not formalism. Formalism is thinking that God needs our religion. And God rebukes this kind of thinking. He says, if I needed something, why would I ask you? I own everything. It's all mine. And so when we think God needs our perfectly planned prayers or deliberately unplanned prayers or a perfect service or every box is perfectly checked, when we think that God needs that, that's formalism. God asks in verse 13, do I eat the flesh of blood or drink the blood of goats? The false gods of the nations around Israel all depend on man to eat, right? If we look at them, it's quite comical, rather. Um, we have the, the Babylonian flood narrative that says that because of the flood, the gods almost starve to death, almost starve to death, right? And so the, the gods learn through the flood, the myth goes, that it's a bad idea to flood the earth and that they wouldn't do it again because they almost starve to death. The true and living God is independent. He does not need his creation. He is independent. He's not dependent upon anything that he had made. And so he issues this rebuke, and then he does what? He calls, it's a call for renewal. Repentance in Scripture is turning from sin and to God, right? From sin and to God. It says, offer to God a sacrifice, right? And see what it says? It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving to perform your vows to the Most High, Verse 14. Verse 15. Call upon me by prayer in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Right? This is the call. Right? There's a rebuke and then a call. <clears throat> a call to renewal. And so let us always be, dear Christian, people of repentance, a people of repentance, committed to repentance, dying to sin, living to righteousness by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, in your life, it's a reality if you belong to him. And let us root out, root, root out and throw away any idea that the Lord needs our worship, but rather that we're the ones in need, right? We're the ones that are served in worship. And let us follow the instruction of the Hebrews, uh, of Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 13, that we read earlier, right? The instruction. Therefore, through him, let us all continue let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Right? So we see so far in the psalm the call to covenant renewal and then the call to worship, wholehearted, true, grateful worship. And then lastly, we see that it's a call to live a life of gratitude, to live a grateful life. Right? There's that old structure uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism, right? This guilt, grace, and gratitude, right? We need to know these things, what the problem is, what God has done, and how to live a life flowing out of that reality. And that's how God does it, right? How does he restore that relationship? <clears throat> Through renewal, and then by calling his people, he's given a structure, a formula, a creed, and a ritual. He calls them to renewal by living lives of gratitude. Right, look at verse 16. <clears throat> but to the wicked God says, right, and again, he's speaking of the, 
those fallen, the, the wicked within the covenant people. He's talking to those who are living in contradiction to their profession, who name the name of Yahweh, yet are not living like that. And he says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Right? It's a reference to God's law, especially the Decalogue, it's the Ten Commandments. Taking the covenant on the lips is a reference to lying about it. It's faking, it's pretending to obey his, co- uh, his com- uh, covenant. Verse 17 tells us how, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Right? And we know the biblical truth that those the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines. He disciplines like beloved children. And the other side of that is true, right? Beloved children, those who love the Lord, they accept, they appreciate, they receive his discipline. And it has its effect, its right and godly effect. God has given his law to guide us, his rule for life, to guide us from unrighteousness, from ungodliness unto godliness. But God says that those wicked among them Verse 18, right? Listen to how he goes through the commandments. Uh, the seventh and eighth commandment. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, right? A tongue that frames deceit. Uh, your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son, right? The ninth commandment. <clears throat> and God says all, through, uh, all throughout that he has held his tongue, right? Verse 20, I have been silent, and because of that, verse 20 goes on, you thought that I was one like yourself. <laughs> I've been silent. What an irony, right? <clears throat> and then he says, you considered I am, that's the word there in, that, in verse 20, to be like you. And this is the warning, uh, a warning against presuming on the Lord's patience. And the God who once was silent speaks, verses 21 and 22, but now I rebuke you, and I lay charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. That's been the pattern of this, this psalm, right? Again, we've seen it. Rebuke and then renewal. Call, that's a rebuke, and then to renew. Right? And we see that renewal in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his, his way rightly I will show the salvation of God. And there's the promise again, the response, the outflow of that renewal. And you know, we have such a privilege, brothers and sisters, a blessing and a privilege as God's people in the time that we live in. And as the church with the spirit that's been outpoured, residing in each heart, each Christian heart, let us remember what the Lord calls us to do, what he reminds us of, the renewing of that covenant. He secured by his promise, fulfilled by the blood of the Son, every time we meet. For as Hebrews says, God is still a consuming fire. The same God who's on Sinai is here in our midst. That's what Hebrews is telling us. It's true, it's more true than the things we see with our eyes. That's why the warning and why we offer acceptable worship. This is why it's important. It's not a trite thing. It's not perfunctory. It's not mechanistic. It's not just formalism. This is truly what's going on. And this should inform our worship. This should inform what we do and the posture that we have as we come. And you see, it's informed by reverence and awe because of who God is. Because God does not change. He is still a consuming fire. So we come with joy because we're forgiven. And we come with gratitude because of all that he's promised to you. 
But when you come, you come with reverence and awe. We often think, you know, the grace somehow has uh, minimized God or domesticated God or feminized God. But God is still a judge and he is still holy. We are on dangerous ground when we think, when we begin to lean away from that truth and lean towards putting our desires and our wants and our preferences above the Lord's. It's dangerous ground, brothers and sisters. Why? Because he is a consuming fire. Being against him is not a safe place to be. And so when you come before him, come before him as he is, holy, pure, perfect. And the only possible way or reason that we can come at all before him is because of what? Because Jesus, our mediator, is there. Because his blood was shed for us. And the more we realize this, and the more it will catapult us to greater reverence and greater awe, right? There's this multi multiplying effect. And I hope you're grasping the reality of this and the glory and the weight and the, de the delight of all of this. Because the more we do, we could never think the church is boring, right? When people actually see this and grasp what's going on in worship, they find that they actually want to be here. <laughs> they actually want to be here and take part of that event. So brothers and sisters, <clears throat> this great and glorious reality should drive us. It should drive us to think about the way we enter worship, the way we prepare ourselves to come to worship. It should guide us and drive us to sing with all of our hearts and to see that showing joy and gratitude is expected when we enter into his worship because we are truly joyful and, and grateful because we, you know, we truly, what we can only see by faith is actually taking place. The scripture tells us. So if only God would just reveal it to us, right? What was really going on? It would change the way we worship. Even those of us who take seriously these things and care about these things. But the reality is he has shown us by his word and we have to accept it by faith. We can go on, but let's just focus on this as we do close. It should amaze you that God wants to take part in worship with you this morning. It's an amazing thing. He wants to take place, us to take place within that. And that should blow your mind. And so let us grasp, brothers and sisters, let us grasp by faith what is truly going on when we come as his people to worship together. And let us, as a result, come with hearts full of joy for what Christ has done for us. For Christ has accomplished your salvation. He is seated at the right hand of God and your sins have been dealt with, all of them, fully and finally. And that should truly make you rejoice truly make you rejoice. God has come to do business with you, dear Christian, to feed you and to feed you again at the table, to know once again that you are at peace with him and he is not against you, he is for you. So believe by faith and come again and again, even with greater thanksgiving and joy and awe and reverence, for God is a consuming fire and praise him that all that was needed to escape that punishment, that just wrath due to us was provided for us powerfully, completely in Jesus Christ our Lord, for he took all of that. No more, no more of that wrath remains for you who belong to him. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for the gospel, for giving us life through Christ. Father, we pray that as your word goes out, then that you would feed your people and have its full effect 
not only here, but around the world, as you see fit, as you have sovereignly determined. Lord, we ask work through those whom you've sent out on the mission field, again here, at home, and in faraway lands, Lord, work to bring people to life through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news, the finished work of Jesus. We do, Lord, pray that you would protect your servants who do so far and near. We ask, Lord, give us a true sense of the victory that is ours in Christ. Help us to see who we are, united to Christ, dead to sin once and for all. And Lord God, may we walk increasingly in newness of life that you saved us into. And we would do those good works that you've saved us into as well as an outflow of who we are. Help us, Lord, to have our hearts filled with love, that we would care and love one another, that we would work through us to bear testimony to the love that you've shown us in Christ, that we, to the outside world, would have a strong spiritual aroma of the love of Christ, of the forgiveness we've been shown, of grace, and hearts that care and live for you, all to your glory. Lord, help what we say, believe to be true in our hearts, now working of our lives. <clears throat> Father, we pray for those who suffer in our midst, as you would encourage them, Lord, even through us. And we thank you that we can do so and that you do use us as instruments of your grace. Lord, we ask that you would grant us, that we would endure, and that the comfort of your spirit and the peace that transcends all human understanding would overflow in our lives and strengthen our hearts. Uh, Lord, we pray for the children in this church, that you would continue to bless them, protect them. Lord, we pray that they would love you with all their hearts, and that as they struggle in this life, as they grow, and as they suffer, and even as they sin and fail, that the gospel would become all the more real to them and truly become good news as they embrace it by faith time and time again. We pray for the parents here today, Lord, that they would love their children and rear them according to your word in the true and holy faith. Father, we pray for the husbands and wives, that they would love one another with a Christ-like love, sacrificially in service to one another for your glory, and even for all of us, Lord, regardless of our station in life, married, single, regardless of our age, help us to have swelled hearts filled with your love. We would care and love each other. We would indeed be a peculiar people to the world, and that would be a witness to your glory and the truth of the gospel, even as we proclaim it with our mouths. We praise you, Lord, that you have fed us afresh this day. As we have heard your word, may we see that this is our life and our sustenance, even in this time of sojourn away from our true homeland with you in glory. Lord, we long for the day. Give us strength in this in-between time, even in sorrow and difficulty and affliction. We ask, gracious Father, strengthen us and be with us. We bring all these things to you in the name of your mighty, uh, of, of our mighty Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.